This is the fifth episode of Dr. 101, a podcast where we break down the science behind medicine into easily relatable terms, and where we dissect the art of advocating for yourself in a medical setting, such as a doctor's office or hospital. I'm Dr. Rahman, CEO and Chairman at Rode, and as you can tell by the title, today's podcast is about the opioid epidemic. So let's sit back and relax, or if you're jogging, or driving to work, or wherever you may be listening, and get into this crisis. A common mentality surrounding the opioid epidemic is this not-in-my-backyard attitude that is damaging to society as a whole. By this, I mean, let's say someone lives in town Y, and this town has a neighboring city we'll call City X, and City X might be a little bit more run-down, less safe, and less developed relative to town Y. You can see how someone living in the more affluent town Y can easily blame their drug problem on their neighboring city or worse, completely deny that the problem even exists in the first place. This denial, of course, diminishes the severity of the opioid issue, and is definitely something that is not conducive to finding concrete solutions, as we have seen deaths rising to epidemic proportions in the last 10 to 15 years. The statistics behind the opioid epidemic gives us a clearer big picture of the overall problem. First, Heroin-related overdose deaths increased by five times from 2010 to 2016, according to the CDC. Now, I'm not going to discount this statistic by any means, but the idea of a homeless junkie shooting up heroin on a street corner is a rather antiquated view of the crisis, since the problem has been going on for decades and has grown to be even more prevalent now more than ever, especially in younger generations. Speaking of the young, we see that 1 in 5 of all deaths among young adults were opioid-related in 2016, according to the Journal of American Medical Association. Here, the keywords are young adults, because in my experiences working in an opioid psychiatric clinic, the earlier the exposure to opioids, the higher the likelihood of falling into a vicious cycle of relapse and sobriety throughout one's life. Far too often, I have spoken to older adults who regret their opioid addiction, many of whom who started in their early teenage years and led a life that spiraled out of control as they sought their next fix in their quest for instant gratification. Unfortunately, we do not see many teens and young adults making this realization and seeking help, unless, of course, it is involuntarily on a stretcher coming into the emergency department during an overdose. Even though as a society we usually think of an 18 or 21 year old as an adult, newest results in neuroscience show that the brain does not fully develop into an adult brain until the age of 25. So this begs the question that I will leave up to you. Are 18 and 21 just arbitrary numbers and is 25 the new 18? The third important statistic is that over half of young adults that misused or abused prescription opioids received them from a family or friend. Whether innocently using leftover opioids from a family's medicine cabinet, say after a car accident, or whether not so innocently participating in pill-popping parties, this is where middle and high schoolers grab whatever they can from their homes and mix these drugs to get high, causing sometimes fatal outcomes, both of these instances can and do contribute to the opioid addiction crisis. Let's now look at the risk factors for opioid addiction, which are pretty simple and straightforward. 
One is past or current substance use disorder. So if one abused or is currently abusing a drug, they are more likely to abuse opioids. The second is untreated psychiatric disorders. This subset of the population is more likely to abuse drugs, including opioids, because they are seeking some kind of relief for their psychiatric problem, which, for one reason or another, has not been treated yet. The third risk factor is young age, and this is because the young are more often attracted to what is illegal or what they can't or shouldn't have, opioids in this case. Fourth, encouraging social circles are also a risk factor, since peer pressure is very real, whether in teens or adults. One additional risk factor that isn't always mentioned is pain, since opioids may be prescribed after surgery, an accident, or for severe back problems, just to name a few. But just because it's prescribed by a doctor does not mean that it cannot lead to addiction over an extended period of time. Now, something to know here is that all of these risk factors are just that, factors that increase the likelihood of misusing or abusing opioids. And know that opioid addiction does not discriminate. It can affect anyone from any background, socioeconomic status, age, or even medical history. So far, we've been referring to opioids mainly as a general class of drugs. But what drugs are we specifically referring to? Well, opioids are one of the oldest drugs used by humans, and in modern times, drugs such as heroin that can be injected intravenously or IV, snorted nasally, or smoked by inhalation, and morphine that is commonly given in an inpatient hospital setting for pain via IV are two powerful opioids. After heroin and morphine, we have codeine, or commonly known as Tylenol-3 prescribed for severe cough and hydrocodone, commonly known as Vicodin, prescribed for pain, both of which are taken orally. Unfortunately, with codeine glamorized in rap songs and Vicodin popularized in House MD, the TV show, opioids being shown in a positive light in the mainstream media certainly do not help matters. And the most important opioid in current headlines is fentanyl, a drug normally prescribed for severe pain in cancer patients, and there are many ways to take this drug, including a patch whereby the drug is rather easily absorbed through the skin. In the past couple of years, fentanyl has, is becoming the preferred drug of choice for opioid addicts, leading to even greater number of deaths. Now that we have a solid understanding of the names of some of the drugs, a commonly overlooked aspect of the opioid crisis is just how severe the effects of opioids are on the body. Without understanding these toxic effects, the severity of the issue can never be fully appreciated. On a fundamental level, I like to think of drugs as they function in the body as a lock and key method. Think of any drug, in our case any of the opioids we just mentioned, as the key. Once ingested, an opioid travels through the blood to find its corresponding lock or a receptor in the body. Just like in real life, a key will not open any lock, but only the lock the key was designed to open. As more opioids are taken, more opioid receptors in the body are unlocked. These receptors that specifically respond to opioids are found in various organs, the spinal cord, and even the brain. 
Once the opioid drug, our key, binds to our opioid receptors, the lock, we begin to see symptoms as a result of opioid ingestion. Some terms to define that are often used in the opioid epidemic discussion are worth mentioning since they might be confusing for those who do not know exactly what they mean. Words like tolerance, dependency, and addiction. First is tolerance, which is a need of more and more of the drug over time as the body gets used to lower doses of the drug, commonly seen in addicts. Dependency is just what it sounds like. The body is dependent on the drug. And when the drug is not in the system, it will cause withdrawal symptoms or severe craving, which we will soon get into. And addiction, which is the craving and desire for the drug, and without the drug, the individual cannot function with their daily activities. We already know that opioid-intoxicated patients may present with feelings of euphoria and a high, but severe symptoms include shallow breathing or respiratory failure loss of consciousness, coma, and even death during intoxication. And many times, the craving symptoms after the individual has last taken the opioid, called withdrawal symptoms, are much worse than the intoxication symptoms. Withdrawal can begin 6-12 to hours since the last opioid dose, and can last anywhere from a few days to up to two weeks. These symptoms are what I like to think of as a leaky body, such as sweating, teary eyes, diarrhea, that can worsen into severe anxiety, heart palpitations, and even coma and death. Here we see that both intoxication while taking the drug and withdrawal up to two weeks after taking the last dose can both have deadly effects. To treat both the opioid intoxication and withdrawal, we have several options. You may have heard of naloxone with a trade name Narcan, which is used to treat intoxication. Remember the lock and key example for how drugs work? Well, Narcan helps block opioids from binding to the receptor so that the effects of opioids can be diminished and eventually reversed. You may have seen the billboards when Narcan first became over-the-counter at drug stores like CVS or Walgreens, and this helps avoid crowding at emergency departments and helps save the intoxicated victim from an expensive doctor's visit. Longer-acting drugs, taken for months and even years, such as methadone and buprenorphine, help patients stay off opioids and keep opioid withdrawal symptoms to a minimum. So we have all of this background information, but we still haven't even reached the root cause of the opioid epidemic, which is the overprescription of opioids that leads to the flooding of drugs throughout American streets. But can we simply blame doctors for this overprescription and call it a day? Let's now dive deeper to see exactly what is going on. We must investigate the system to see how and why the opioid crisis is getting worse overall. And the main driving force behind the overprescription is Purdue Pharma, the makers of oxycodone, with the trade name OxyContin. Not only do they profit from making these opioids, the billionaire Sackler family behind Purdue Pharma also owns Rhodes Pharma, which makes generic opioids and also makes buprenorphine, the drug as we previously mentioned, which helps treat opioid addiction. 
So not only are they making the brand name opioid OxyContin, they're also making a generic version of the opioid through Rhodes Pharma, as well as a treatment for opioid addiction, buprenorphine. Now, as a business owner myself in the profit and non-profit sectors, I am for companies to grow and make as much money as they can, but at what cost and how many lives? And their ownership of both the drug and the treatment must be examined to see whether they are profiting from more people who are taking opioids that will lead to more people needing treatment for opioid addiction. As we're about to see through Purdue Pharma's deceptive business practices and marketing schemes, the negatives in this case greatly outweigh their profits. In over 1,000 lawsuits against Purdue Pharma being consolidated in federal courts currently, various state attorney generals have revealed Purdue's illegal and unethical actions. First, it is now known that Purdue representatives purposely overstated the benefits and downplayed the side effects of OxyContin. According to Purdue's own documents, they knowingly targeted pill mills they knew would overprescribe, as well as clinics with overworked and undertrained physicians. They refer to pill mill doctors as drug dealers who should prescribe OxyContin in high doses for anyone with a variety of complaints, from generalized pain to sleeplessness. You can see how a system like this can flood American streets with opioids. And the fight against Purdue is nothing new, and this has been going on as early as May of 2007, when the first major case against Purdue led to misdemeanor and felony charges against the company, as well as individual charges brought against top executives, leading to hundreds of millions of dollars in fines. At that time, Purdue promised to do better. But since then, in the past over 10 years, court documents and attorney generals throughout the U.S. revealed that Purdue has continued to willfully misbrand opioids, deceive doctors, and practice fraudulent marketing tactics. Now, of course, in regards to curtailing the opioid crisis, the U.S. government should do all in its power to limit Purdue's monopoly on the opioid crisis, which has undeniably reached epidemic proportions. But what can be done from a medical point of view? We already talked about Narcan, which is used in emergency overdose settings, and methadone and buprenorphine, two drugs that are effective long-term for opioid addiction. What's interesting is that all of these drugs contain opioids themselves, since we're essentially treating the craving symptoms. So if an addict is craving opioids, we supply them with what their body needs, in this case, opioids, but in a controlled medical setting, with the goal of eventually weaning them off completely. In solving the opioid crisis on a holistic societal level, the problem is not a medical or even legal problem, but rather an education problem. The denial we talked about in the very beginning is the biggest problem, because if we're not even willing to admit that there's an opioid problem, or learn about the problem, or even address the issue if we know the problem exists, there's no possibility of coming up with concrete solutions. On an individual level, we, whether as healthcare providers or as patients, must not jump to opioids as first-line treatments. 
Yes, I understand that pain can be very real and severe, but we as a society must research alternative means of chronic pain relief, such as non-addictive painkillers, such as Tylenol, Advil, steroids, various antidepressants, other means such as physical therapy, massages, acupuncture, and meditation, all of which have been proven to work for chronic pain. One modality worth giving extra attention to is cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, or commonly what people usually think of when they think of therapy. CBT can unearth and resolve many psychological factors associated with chronic pain, and is proven to work better with drugs versus prescribing drugs alone without CBT. So as we can see, there are many different approaches to treating pain, and talking to a healthcare provider is necessary to fully discuss which options are best for each individual. As a society, it is our duty as citizens to be informed of what is going on around us, and the opioid epidemic is certainly no exception. With this basic knowledge, I intend to help continue the conversation to help find solutions to the opioid crisis on a local, state, and national levels. Before we close, if you're enjoying this, please don't forget to rate this podcast and subscribe. Also, I'm happy to take your questions on Twitter at AskDoctor101 or email me at AskDR101 at gmail.com. I just have a short message from our sponsor, Dr. Dermacare, a skincare clinic for your skincare needs, including microdermabrasion, permanent hair removal, chemical peels, dermaplaning, and so much more. They're located in Peekskill, New York. Call 877-266-0300. That's 877-266-0300 today for more information and schedule an appointment today. Thanks for listening.